Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It is so good to see you. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel 4. Daniel 4, verses 28 through 37 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, how many of you, if, as parents, ever had uh, thumb suckers? Kids that suck their thumbs, any of you? Okay, lots of you. Uh, and if you have not had children, just wait. I mean, thumb sucking is one of those things when they're babies, you're like, oh, this is awesome. They're not crying right now. And then they get older, and by kindergarten, you're like, hey, buddy, you got to pull the thumb out of your mouth. And uh, we had two kids, my oldest, Jaden, my youngest, Hallie. They were thumb suckers, and, uh, you know, they, for a long time. And, you know, as a parent, you're trying to always, like, you know, it gets to the point where you're like, okay, you have to stop doing this. And for my daughter, it was really easy. I just offered her, I'm like, if you stop sucking your thumb, I'll buy you a dog. And she was like, boom, like that was it. <laughs> my son took a little, I mean, we tried the stuff you paint on the, on the thumb where it's like, it's bitter, it's just disgusting tasting. And he would just like suck it off and just keep being like, I will win this battle. And we tried everything. And I remember one of the things that uh, uh, my brother, who's a church planter over in Germany, he gave us this book of uh, children nursery rhymes like this ancient, not ancient, but you know what I mean? It's like nursery, German nursery rhymes. And uh, I'm telling you, you read, these, these are dark stories. I mean, they're like PG-13. And one of the things I learned, and I, and I realized I can make fun of the German culture because I'm German. And one of the things that Germans love to do is they love to scare people into behaving properly. And it was just, I could, my, I could hear my grandmother just, don't do that, you're going to die. Or don't do that, you're going to get paralyzed. Or, don't do that. And so I realized where she learned this from is this, these German nursery rhymes. And they go all the way back to the mid-1800s. And there's this one story called Struvelpeta. And Struvelpeta was a kid who wouldn't stop sucking his thumb. And so as the German nursery rhyme goes, they tried to help this child to stop sucking his thumb. And eventually, someone with large, giant scissors chops his thumbs off. And at the end of the story, there's this kid that has no thumbs, and there's blood squirting. I was like, uh, and you're like, don't suck your thumb, or we might chop him off. And you're, you read this story, and I'm like, okay, you know. But I was desperate, so I tried that with Jaden. Still didn't work. Uh, but... You know, you have these moments where you see someone doing something and you want to warn them, hey, you shouldn't do that. Now, with our kids, you know, hey, don't suck your thumb or you're going to need braces. But as a five-year-old, who cares about braces? But, but there, there's more, there's bigger items, there's, there's more deeper issues than that in our world today. And, and what this story is, Daniel chapter 4, is a warning passage. It's a warning passage to, to, for, for Nebuchadnezzar, because what he is doing is he's living his own life. Pastor Dan did an amazing job last week, really explaining how God invaded Nebuchadnezzar's life. And this is what God does with all of our lives. He invades our life to help us, to make sure that we turn to him. And he, whatever our story is, he can turn our story into his glory. And that was the message of, of last week. But here's the question that, that we're going to get into the details of is, is this. How does God do that? How does God take a man like Nebuchadnezzar, who's so proud and so arrogant, and turn him into someone who's praising Yahweh? Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves, one of the things I always start, like to say to you when we're teaching God's word is, hey, ask the Bible questions. 
And this is, the, this is the question I want us to ask this morning. Why is this story in here? Why is this story in here? Well, if we think about it, the book of Daniel was written to Jews in exile. It was written to a Jewish audience. And remember, the, the Jewish people were in exile because they had rebelled against God. They had done their own thing. They had, they, had, they had their own pride and their own arrogance and their own idolatry. And so God said, okay, I've had enough. I'm putting you into exile. And Nebuchadnezzar's story is a story that, that parallels the Jewish people. And there's a reason why this story is in here. It's a story that, that's it's because God, what's, it's reminding the Jewish people in exile is, listen, I am a God who cares about not just your sin. I care about all sin. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, God cares only about, you know, I feel like I'm always getting it from God and no one, no one else cares. God is using the illustration of a personal life as a model, as a, as, as a model of what the people of God are going through. And so what he's, what he's doing is saying, listen, just like you have been humbled, I'm humbling Nebuchadnezzar. Just like there is a season of time where he is going to be humbled, this is the season you're in right now. And just like he will be elevated, I'm going to elevate you. And so this is a lesson. This is not just a warning. It is a hope. And this is what God, this story is in here to show the Jewish people that he, God cares not just about them. He cares about the praise and worship of all people. And so that's why this story is in here. God is showing the, the, the recipients of this letter, I have a way of turning pride into praise. That's what God does. God can transform our pride into praise. He can transform a personal, it doesn't matter how arrogant or how proud someone is, I don't think you're going to find someone more arrogant than Nebuchadnezzar, but he can turn them into a worshiper of God. God can take any nation and make them worshipers of him. But here's the thing. There is a process and there's a way of humbling that only God can do. And so this story and, and how God does this is going to leave, leave us with two major applications. And one is, it is a warning for us. It's a warning for you that if you are in the path like Nebuchadnezzar, now is the time to turn and repent and humble yourself before God. But it's also another thing. It's, it's, a, it's a story of hope that says this. If you are going through a season where God is humbling you, God has a way of turning our pride into praise. And so let's look at how God does this. Let's look at verse 28. We're going to read 28 through 37. This is all this. So, so remember, Dan, Dan shared the story. Nebuchadnezzar gets warned by Daniel in this dream. Listen, you have got to be careful, Nebuchadnezzar. You are on a bad path. The dream you had about that giant tree getting chopped down, that's you. And unless you turn from your ways, God's going to bring judgment on you. Well, look what happens. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So he is he's walking around. He's forgotten the dream. He's forgotten all that he's seen at this point. He just looks upon the, the giant, you know, the one of the greatest cities ever in the history of the world, the greatest kingdom of the earth at that point. And he looks around and says, you know what? I'm pretty awesome. 
okay? Now listen, we, we, might, not, we might not be kings over cities, but there are always times, there are all time, times that for all of us, we look at our, our, something in our life, we look at something we've done, and we will have the temptation to think of ourselves and say, you know what? I'm pretty awesome. That's in all of us. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is very natural for us as human beings. And as he says this, look what happens in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So Nebuchadnezzar goes through a massive transformation the most highly dignified human being, proud, arrogant, egomaniac. And God does something to him. He takes away his sanity. He takes away his understanding of life. And he humbles him to the point where he is crawling around on his hands and knees, eating grass like an ox. And his fingernails are becoming like birds. I mean, he has lost it. The, the, the description of what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar is very vivid, and it is very clear. He has been humbled. But that's not the end of the story, because look what happens. Verse 34, this is what we read earlier in the service. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will, according to the hosts of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Not myself, but the king of heaven. For his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble we see a different man from verse 30 to verse 37. There is a transformation that takes place. A transformation from pride to praise. But how does God do it? It's the same thing that he does in all of us. It's the same thing he's doing. He's an invitation to all of us that how he transforms our pride into praise. How he takes someone who's so full of himself, someone who's doing their own thing in their own ways, who's walking away from God, and who draws that person close to him. And this is an act of love. This is something that God's doing. And the first thing that God does, how does God, do, how does God transform our pride into praise? The first thing he does is he corrects us with consequences. He corrects us with consequences. 
there's something that God does to Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles him greatly. He makes him act like an animal. It's something that, I want us to dig into this a little bit, because there's a lot of ways he could have humbled Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he could have lost in battle. There's some other things he could have done. This is big stuff. Now, now, let me just pause right now and say this. This is such a crazy story. It's a supernatural story that many people that read the Bible, or maybe they're skeptical against the supernatural, will read this and say, this, is, this could have never happened. In fact, there's no historical proof or evidence that this story ever happened. And so therefore, this is just a parable that Daniel is speaking. Well, let me just explain to you why I believe that the Bible is true. The Bible is always true. And even though there's not a historical record, I think there is a reason for that. I believe what we, are, what we are reading here is an actual account. And the reason why I believe that is because in the next chapter for next week, Daniel alludes to this story to Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And he would not have done that if he was like, that, it's, this is a fairy tale. This is a real event. And I think it's important that we understand that for a couple of reasons because we need to have faith in God's word that it is true. But it is true that there's no exact replica or parallel story in the Babylonian record. But there are some other external things that we can point to and say, there's something here, even in the external Babylonian records. But the first thing you understand is this. In those days, no king, no ruler, no kingdom ever talked about or wrote down the bad things that they ever did. Like if you were a king, whether you're Pharaoh or nothing, like they never, they never recorded I, I went out to battle, and I lost the battle. That's not what they talked about. They only recorded the battles that they did win. And so it's very normal for us. I mean, think about it. If you were going to write an autobiography, the bad parts of your life are going to like, just put that in a sentence. And that, this is, So it's very normal for us to not see these kinds of things in the Babylonian record. But, but here's what's so interesting. We see things around the Babylonian record that can say, hey, there's something here. For example... Up until the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar is building all kinds of things. In fact, in the first 11 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he makes 15 million bricks to build things. And on every one of those 15 million bricks, he puts his name and how great he is on every single brick. I think pride was a problem for him. And the reason he did this is he knew. He knew what happens to kingdoms when they fall. He knew that the other people that follow him, they scrub out the name. And what he was saying is, go ahead and try to do that 15 million times. I will outlast you. He cared about his name. He cared about his glory. But here's the thing. After the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it stops. We don't see it anymore. All of this self-promotion, all of this dedication to all these Babylonian gods. And at year 11, it's like it drops off a cliff and something drastically happened. There's only four other mentions in the last two and a half decades of his reign where there is a mention of, of him. And so from four times in 20-some years to millions of times in the first 11 years, something happened at the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. That's something that we know from the record. We also know this. There's a historian called Megasthenes who was an Assyrian historian. We don't actually have his writings, but we have people that quoted him in our writings. And he says, as he's recounting Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he mentions something that there was a time in which King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was possessed by a foreign god and started saying crazy stuff. Okay, well, that's something. 
And then we also have an actual tablet that, that they dug up. And we don't have the full tablet, but we, from, the, from the information we have from a Babylonian tablet describing behaviors of Nebuchadnezzar when he started doing strange things. It, starts, it says things like he was doing thing, irrational behaviors. It said things that he had lost all interest in life, and he had lost all interest in his children. And we, can only, we only have like half of it, the other half we don't have. So we don't really know the full story, but we have something that says something happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life where things went south for him. And that's why I believe what we're talking about here is a real story. It's something that really happened. But there's a couple things that we have to think through when it comes to these consequences. Number one, why was it so severe? Why is Nebuchadnezzar's correction, punishment, judgment, why is this so severe? And this is something that you and I need to understand. That God, when the more revelation that you receive, the, the harsher judgment we get. This is true. We see this all the way through Scripture. Whether it's, whether it's Aaron's sons offering fire illegitimately in the temple to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, people that receive great amounts of revelation receive harsher consequences for their rebellion against God. That's very true. It's very true. It's, it's, you can't plead ignorance for every case. And that's what, what you have to say is Nebuchadnezzar has already seen God do so many things. Think about it. In chapter 2, God, has been give, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And he dreams this dream. And God sends him Daniel to interpret that dream to say, hey, here's what's going to happen in the future. Right? And then chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, gets crazy, you know, he gets upset. He throws those three Jewish boys into the fire. What happens? They don't get burned. Nebuchadnezzar sees a miracle from God where people were not burned up. And, and in both times in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's like, whoa, like the God you serve is great. And then in chapter 4, he's given another dream, and a prophet, Daniel, goes to him and says, Nebuchadnezzar, change your ways. Three significant revelation events to Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he do? It's his, his reaction to that is only for a season. And eventually God says, I've given you enough warning. I've given you enough time. I've given you enough revelation. And because you will not listen to me, I will correct you now. See, the, 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 the correction is always in relation to the revelation that we receive but it is also a reflection of the depths of the pride that he has. Because his pride is so great, his humbling has to be greater. And so this is the correction, this is the consequences that God gives to him. And, and so why is this important? Because remember, the Jews are being in exile. They, they are, they are, the parallel to them is they received prophets' warnings. They have received revelation. They have received, you know, supernatural events in their life, and they rebelled against God just like Nebuchadnezzar. They are seeing the same exact consequences, very similar as Nebuchadnezzar had. And the reason why that's important is because, again, this is a warning for us. This is a warning for every man, woman, and child that says, you know what, God? I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to do my own thing. This is a, we call the series Thriving in Babylon. And there's always going to be a temptation. Listen to me, especially those of you who are younger in this room. There's always going to be a temptation to say, you know what? I'm going to leave the ways of God 
and I'm going to join Babylon. And, and I believe it's, it's very important for us, especially those of us that grow up in the church, that we need to understand if we're going to walk away from God, we know what we're walking away from. And sometimes the consequences of that rebellion are sometimes harsher. Not because God is, is, is mean. It's not because God is angry. It's not because he's like, you know, he's, it's not like he's bitter. It's just he knows what it's going to take to get you back to him. And that's what we do as parents. A good parent knows how to give consequences out to their children in the right way in the right time. You know, when it comes to correcting my kids, I have those moments where it was like, okay, if they did something out of ignorance, I might give them a consequence, but it's not going to be a consequence that's that, you know, it's not that big. But if it's something that I've warned them over like five, six times, and they're still kind of like, yeah, I don't care. At that point, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to give you a consequence where it starts where you start caring. And that's what God's doing. He's giving Nebuchadnezzar a consequence where he's saying, I want you to start caring about the right things. I've given you, I've given you multiple opportunities to turn back to me, and you haven't done it. And that's what God does. God corrects us with consequences. And so, and so we see this, this correction. And there's something else I want to point out right before we move on. But notice that the consequence of, of Nebuchadnezzar makes him like an animal, right? He eats grass like an ox. His, his hair grows long, long like an eagle, nails long. Like, I mean, it's just, it's very animalistic. And there's something that God is saying with this picture. And this is what he's saying. When you remove God from your life and you start making yourself the ultimate authority and you do what you want to do, the flesh wants to do, you will become more animalistic. You see, when you humble yourself and say, God, I'm going to serve you and worship you, you become more like Jesus. It's, the, it's this thing we see over and over again. It's one of the laws of God that when you try to make yourself great, you will make yourself worse. And if you make yourself humble, God will exalt you. Humble yourself. It says this in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due time, he will exalt you. See, the way of God is humility to exaltation. The way of man's way is I will exalt myself, but it will lead to a humbling. That's what, that's what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the very last thing he says is this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That is the way of God. And when we are on the path towards the, towards the beast, we're going to see this. Whenever we see a beast-like creature later on in the book of Daniel, it's a kingdom or it's a person who's doing their own thing. And when we rebel against God and his ways, we become more beast-like. And the more we humble ourselves to God's ways, we become more Christ-like. And that's one of the things we need to remember. But there, all of us are on that path. What path are you on? That leads us to our second one, that God not only corrects us with consequences, God also controls the timing of our humbling. He controls the timing of our humbling. Look what it says in the middle of verse 32. It says, And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. See, not only, not only does God know what to bring into our lives, he might know, it's like, I know exactly what kind of problem you have, 
And Nebuchadnezzar, what you need is you need to be you need to be so humble that you start acting like an animal. You lose your sanity. God not only knows what it's going to take to humble us, he knows how long it's going to take to humble us. Because for many of us, we're like, all right, God, I learned the lesson. After 15 minutes of, of, of God humbling, okay, all right, all right, God, I get it. And we really have no clue. But he gives Nebuchadnezzar it's a seven periods of time. Now, that can be, some scholars say that could be seven months. Most likely, I believe it means seven years. Another interpretation is that a theory could be is that because it, he uses the word seven, because seven is the number of completeness in Scripture, what God is saying is, I'm going to humble you in this way until I get this pride out of your life. But that's what God's caring about. God says this, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to give you this, this process. is going to take time. And that the reason I'm doing this for this time is because I know how long and when it's going to take for this virus of pride to get out of your system. That's what God does. God not only knows what to give you, but knows how long to give it to you. And so this is what God does with us. He makes us, when we're saying, all right, God, that's enough. I mean, we just sang, we just sang a song. I'm not sure if you remember. When the lines we just sang, the last song we sang was, keep me in the flame. Right? And in the refiners, we're asking God, we're singing something, keep me in the flame. Oh, Jesus, burn. And, and, and it's nice to sing that on a Sunday morning until we're in the flame. We're like, get me out, get me out, get me out, get me out. That's what we, that's what we tend to do. And sometimes we've got to remember what we're singing when we sing these songs. But that's the heart that God wants us to have. God, it's your timing. Whatever it is that you want, there's, there's a work in us you want to do, however long it's going to take. You know, one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite sports movies is the movie Miracle. And it chronicles the story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team that, that beat the, uh, the Soviet Union that year. And uh, it's, a, it's, an in, it's just a crazy story. It is truly one of the greatest upsets in sports history. And if you were around during that time, you know what I'm talking about. It, 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 to describe it, it would be the equivalent, okay? I'm trying to think of what an equivalent would be. It would be the equivalent of a team that's last place right now in AAA baseball beating like the, the Los Angeles Dodgers, team with the best, team, best record in baseball. Like it just, it, it would be unheard of to see someone win that kind of victory. And, and so the U.S. was a bunch of college kids. You know, they weren't professionals. The Soviet Union had been together for years and they were professionals, and they, they were the best team on the planet. They had previously beaten the Americans 10-3 to 3 earlier, in that, earlier that year. But the coach, Herb Brooks, knew that he wasn't able to meet, match the team man for man. He didn't have the skill. They didn't have the abilities. The only way that he could beat that team, the Soviet Union, is if they played like a team. If they abided by the system, they could play like a team and they would have a chance. And so the movie shows how all these college kids come and they're just excited to be there and they just want to be in the Olympics and they are not there. They're not even thinking about the gold medal. The only thing they care about is having fun that make sure that they're getting playing time to make sure that they, you know, it's about them. And so there's this one moment in the movie, maybe you remember it if you've seen it, 
There's this moment in the movie, they're playing in Norway, and uh, they're looking up in the stands, it's tied 3-3, they've kind of had an okay game, but coach is like just frustrated because they're not really playing together as a team, and half the bench is making googly eyes at these Norwegian girls in the stands, and they're like making plans after the game to go hang out, and after the game, he calls his whole team on the ice, and he starts making them do these things they called, the team called Herbies, which means you skate from one end of the rink to the other and back as hard and fast as you can go. And he just had the, you know, his other assistant coach had the whistle, and he would say, again, and he would make them skate back and forth, back and, and this just goes on and on and on, long enough that the guys on the team, they start puking. And throughout this entire time, he's calling out different players on the team, saying, who do you play for? And they're naming their college that they play for. And do it again, do it again. And, and it's at this point, the, the, the guy who's controlling the rink, he turns off the lights in the rink. And the guys think they're done. He's like, you're not done. Get back on that line. Again, he keeps saying, again. again. And every time he says again, the coach is like, are you, the other assistant coach has to blow the whistles. Like, are you insane? Again, again, again. Until finally, one of the players calls out his name. And Coach Brooks says, and who do you play for? He says, I play for the United States of America. And Coach Brooks says, that'll be all, boys. You see, Herb Brooks knew what he had to do to get through to his team to play like a team. And God knows what it's going to take to get through to you, to make sure you understand that your life is not about you. It's not about your glory. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your pleasure. It's not about all the things that you're trying to live your life for. It's about him. And God not only knows how to correct us, he knows how long to correct us. So at the end, at the end, look at what it says in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. He knew how long it was going to take before Nebuchadnezzar finally looked up. And he knows how long it's going to take for you to look up. That's what God does. And he's doing that in your life right now. And, and maybe you're in the middle of it and you're saying, God, how long? How long? How long? And he knows how long it's going to take to get that stuff out of us so that our life is about him and not us. So not only does he, does he confront he corrects, us with con he corrects us with consequences. He controls the timing. And then lastly, he confronts our belief in ourself and our belief in God. He confronts our belief in self and our belief in God. Remember, verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, is this, is this Babylon? Like, like this, is, this is the greatest city ever. Look how great I am. I mean, that's what he's saying. I am the greatest human being on the face of this planet. No one could have built this great city like me. Look at the, the building structures. Look at, look at, the, look at the, the amazing works that I have done. And you get to the end. Look at the end of what he says. In the middle of verse 34 to the, verse 35, it says, For his dominion, his dominion, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures forever from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will 
among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He is at the point where he is saying, God, the God of heaven, it's no longer the God of Daniel, right? In chapter 2, it was the God of Daniel. In chapter 3, is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But now he's acknowledging, it's, you're not just a God, and you're not just a powerful God. You are the King of kings, and you are the Lord of lords, and you are the God that is above every dominion and above every generation. You are the God that matters most, and you are the God who, listen, look at the last thing he says, and none can, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, all of us have to confront the belief that we have in ourselves when we think, God, I got it. I'm pretty awesome. God confronts that belief, that confidence that we have in ourselves. And if God loves you enough, he will strip that down until you realize that you need him more than anything else. But not only that, he says, you know, none, no one can say to him, what have you done? Now, that's an odd thing to say. Because what was Nebuchadnezzar doing before he writes this? I mean, he's, he's acting like an animal. He's crawling around on his hands and knees. He's done this for seven years, eating grass, acting like a crazy person. And at the end of it all, he's like, like oh God, you were a little harsh on me. No, you know what? He, he has the perspective now. He has the belief now. That no one can say, can look at God and how he does things and how long he does things and says, you know what? I'm not sure about you, God. Now, I can honestly say I don't think any of us have experienced a, a humbling process like Nebuchadnezzar. But that, that's how you know the God's at work. That we're not only look at our, we don't only look at ourselves differently. We look at God differently. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. But about six years ago, I went through a really, really dark time in my life. And it wasn't even like there were bad, bad circumstances. I just, I just hit this moment in my life where it, uh, the best way I can describe it is, as other uh, theologians says, the dark night of the soul. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a generally positive person. If I took my strengths finder, positivity is like number three. I always think something's going to work out, and I can always look at the bright side of things. That's just who I am. I love life. I'm outgoing. I'm, I'm an extrovert. Uh, I, I enjoy life. But about six years ago, I had this season in my life where it just felt like the joy was gone. And everything felt dark. And I felt like I was in a pit. And I'm sure if I went to a doctor, they would have said, you have depression. And, and it, was, it was hard to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, this... Here's what, the best way I can describe it is, I didn't feel like myself. And it didn't matter how many times I read the Bible, it didn't matter how many times, and I would pray, God, help me to feel, like, what, what are you doing? Like, God, help me to feel better. And I kept praying and praying and praying, and nothing was working. I'm just telling you, there comes a moment when you're going through that darkness where you start to question God's goodness. And I was there. And it was hard. And I would just remember that, God, I just want to feel better. And I wasn't feeling better. And through that year, God did something in my life. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where it never happened. It didn't like, it's not like all of a sudden, uh, it wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar, like I looked up and all of a sudden everything changed. Over time, God brought me out of that season. 
where I was walking through the, fa- the valley of the shadow of death. It, it, in, in the Hebrew, that's that, that verbiage in Psalm 23, he, as he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of deep darkness. That's what actual the, the wording means, and it was deep darkness. And maybe you've been through that. Maybe you're going through that now. But I can honestly say to you this morning, removed from that experience, I look back at that year of my life and I'm thankful to God for it. I'm thankful. I, I, I can say, I, I'm not looking at it and saying, God, why, you know, that wasn't fair. Because as a result of that experience that I had in the pit, in the darkness, I'm able to enjoy God in such a completely different way. I'm able it, it, you know what the biggest thing it did for me is it made me thankful. It made me grateful for my sanity. It made me grateful for the little things in life. And, and, and God knows how, and God knows how long to, to work in us. So at the end of it all, we look to God and say, God, you are good, and you are worthy to receive every bit of praise in my life. Remember I said in the beginning, you know, this is, a, this is a warning passage for those who are on that path like Nebuchadnezzar. But this is also a passage of hope. The passage of hope that, that there's going to be at the end of the days, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. There's going to be a moment. There's, there's no hardship. Here's what we need to know, that in Christ, through Christ, no matter what hardship, no matter what darkness, no matter what trial, no matter what we're finding, there's going to be a moment where that season and that time is at the end of the days, and we will be able to look up to heaven, and we will be able to see and understand and know and love and worship God like we have never done before. And that's what God's doing. And as much as this is a warning passage, this is a passage of hope. And maybe, maybe God is, is telling you this morning, I want you to look up. I want you to have hope right now. Because I, I'm not sure how long this season is going to be. God's in charge of that. But in the midst of this season, I'm going to trust in you. And I'm not going to lose the hope that you give to my soul. Three questions and then we're done. Number one. Are you on the path of the beast or on the path towards Jesus? Listen, if you're sitting there this morning and your life is all about you and all you care about is yourself and all you care about is your glory and your fame and your comfort and your pleasure, let me say there will be a day there's a reckoning. And it might not even be in this life, but there will be a day where you have to face your God, the God of the universe, as judge. And you can either face God, the God of the universe, as judge, or you can face the God of the universe as, as a loving Heavenly Father. But now is the day I'm, call, I'm asking you to repent. God might be calling you to repent. You don't have to go down the path of humbling. You don't have to be humbled the way Nebuchadnezzar was. You can turn in this moment and say, I want to give my life to God. 
I want to give my life to Jesus. I want my life to be about Jesus and not me. And that's the, that's the choice that all of us have. What path are you on? Second question I want to ask you is this. Will you submit to God's timing? Will you submit to God's timing? Some of you are like, God, God come on. God, please just hurry up. I got to hurt. Hurry. Listen, God's never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry to do anything. He, he is going to, he's, he's there and he's like, again. It's not because he hates you. It's not because he's mean. It's because he loves you. And he want, actually, he wants what's best for you. The U.S. team would have never won the gold medal if they, had not under, if they had not submitted to the ways of their coach. And we will never experience the fullness of the glory and the goodness of God on this, on this earth if we continue to wrestle with him and say, God, no, I'm opting out of this. This is taking too long, God. It requires us to submit to him in all things and in all ways. And then lastly, who is your confidence in? Who is your confidence in? For, for, for Nebuchadnezzar, his confidence was once in himself, and then it was in God. I'm trust God is the one, right? He is, he is worthy of all honor and praise. I love what it says in the end there. For, his, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. That's the point where God wants to get you to. Are you trusting in him? Where does your confidence and your hope lie? In yourself or the king of heaven?